This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, longtime resident of China, and Deja Pu, the feeling that you've seen this crap before. My co-host is John Pazzi, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of Allset Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and people tell him he's going deaf, but he never listens to haters. Questions are fundamental functions of language. John and I are going to talk about how to use asking and responding to questions to maximize your learning gain. Guest interview is with Jonathan Reckman, a simultaneous interpreter, entrepreneur, and consultant. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner, recording from Utah in the United States. Hi everybody, my name is John Pasden. I am in Shanghai, China, as usual. Hope everybody's doing well. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to ask a favor of you, our listeners. If you could take a minute and drop us a review, it would help us out a lot. And if you have questions, we can feature them on this here show. So don't be shy. You can email us at feedback at mandarincompanion.com. You can also find a contact form on our website at mandarincompanion.com. And uh, you can leave us a review on any of your favorite podcast apps. Okay, so Jerry, let's get into it. Today, we are talking about the power of questions, the role of questions in your Chinese learning. Ah, yes. A wise man once told me, John, that the person who's asking questions is the person in control. And I think there is some truth to that. But you'll notice that a lot of learners, when they first start learning Chinese, it's all about, you know, saying... My name is, I am from, you know, they have these simple little sentences and then they just learn like a couple questions that they can answer, but they, they hardly ever learn to ask questions of other people. That's right. And I, I think it's part of just being a new learner. Maybe you don't know a lot to say, but questions can be a, a little bit intimidating, right? Yeah, of course, there's always that fear that, you know, you ask a question and then people reply and you have no idea what they what they're saying. Right. So, of course, it's not like the first, you know, five things you learn how to say should all be questions or anything like that. But I find that some people learn Chinese for quite a while and they really just focus on one way communication and they don't actually work on practicing asking even very practical, simple questions for their, their new Chinese friends or conversation partners. But I mean, really, when you think about it, if you meet someone for the first time in your native language, you're not going to be so self-centered as to only talk about yourself and then wait for them to ask you questions, right? It's it's kind of just politeness to to ask the other person some questions about themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll say, you know, it's not easy always coming up with good questions. I always say this about teaching and, you know, conversation is that the core of having a good teacher, in my opinion, and a good conversationalist is, is being able to ask good questions that elicit interesting and good responses. That can be dangerous territory, of course, for us language learners, because as you mentioned earlier, John, maybe you don't understand what they're going to say. But we still have ways that we can approach this. Right. So once you get your basic self-introduction down and you know how to answer the basic questions, don't just move on and never return to that. Um, it's important to keep getting better at these early interactions with other people. And so that also involves adding in questions for new people you meet. And it's not just to be polite. It's also because, you know, you have interests and you want to see if you have interests in common with new people you meet. So how are you going to know that without asking questions? Basically, just 
Just don't be too passive in your interactions with Chinese people. Once you can handle, you know, a little bit more, what's the word? Like maybe uncertainty in what people might say. So, John, you mentioned okay, not being so passive, but you've worked with a lot of learners specifically about this. So, what do you think is a great approach on learning to ask good questions as a Chinese learner? Well, one, you might have some go-to questions that you like to ask new people you meet.、Uh, maybe it's related to your hobbies. Maybe it's just related to things you're interested in, or maybe you just learned something interesting about China and you want to ask people about it. But another thing is,、uh, when you're doing your Chinese lessons, if you have a Chinese teacher. Just make sure that your Chinese teacher encourages you to ask questions. Like that's one of the things we do at All Set Learning with our clients. The teacher is like, "Ask me questions," and you're like, "But I don't have any questions." And they're like, "No, but you have to ask questions. You need to ask me questions because you're at this level. You can do it, and so you should be doing it because it's going to help you get better and it's going to help you in your interactions that are not so." Maybe friendly or predictable because it's someone you don't know, so your teacher can help you deal with that. This is a great and a safe area to practice this. In fact, whenever I have my、uh, time with my tutor,、uh, I always spend that first five ten minutes just talking about what's going on, and I always make sure to ask some of those questions, like you know, what did you do this weekend? Or、uh, one of my tutors, she likes to bake, and and I know how to bake, and my wife's an avid baker, and we, sometimes I ask her about what she's been baking. Uh, and I'll ask her things about her recipe and stuff. And, and yeah, you're right. It takes us into sometimes some unfamiliar territory. But man, yeah, it's great, and that's a great opportunity for me to practice in a safe environment. So one of the things that comes to mind is like when I was getting ready to go to China for the first time, I had this phrase book that I was studying from, and I made the mistake of like only learning how to say things and not learning how to ask questions. And then when I got to China, I couldn't ask the questions I needed to when I needed to because I never practiced them. But、um, I think the same is true. For a lot of people,、um, not just about the typical phrasebook things, but just about the questions you like to ask. So you can kind of have your own personal phrasebook, and it should also include questions. Definitely, and this is something I like to do because you know we all have our unique style or way we like to ask some things and things that we're interested in. Well, I I, de- I definitely do this, John. I never thought of it as a phrasebook per se, but definitely, yeah, I've got these set questions that I might ask people about, you know, about their life or their job. And sometimes, like, you're not sure about how to ask those, and you you don't know, like, hey, what's the proper way to structure this question? Well, yeah, you work on that ahead of time, or you can work with a tutor, or a teacher, or a, a friend, or something like that, and figure out what the right way to say it is, so that it's coming out the right way, and people understand what you're asking about. Okay, and so this is going to help you a lot. But as your Chinese gets better and better, then there's more you can do to help your questions be more effective. And so, if you're going into a somewhat unfamiliar situation, and you know you need to ask some questions, then of course you've already got in the habit of preparing your questions. But if you also know that the most likely answers involve words that you don't really know, then you can anticipate that. You can look up those words, and that way, when you get You know the most likely answer A, B, or C, then you're going to actually understand it, and the conversation won't just stall there. That is wise advice, John. Going back to combining, you know, some of my set questions with,、uh, you know, studying this vocabulary. You know, back in China, I frequently, you know, were working on, you know, business things with different people, and I'd interact with a lot of different Chinese people, and I'm always interested in their business. So, you know, I always ask.、Uh, I learned how to say how's business. And with that, I've started studying a lot of different business vocabulary because I've been start to understanding about their inventory or 
the sales or, uh, you know, all of the different aspects that surround business. So, and that really helped me kind of build a lot of that vocabulary. And that's a stronger branch of my Chinese there because I, I practice some set questions and I learned some of that set vocabulary. And of course, you can do that the more painful way, which is you just keep asking the questions and they keep answering and you keep not understanding. And eventually, when they say the same thing enough times, you start to become familiar with those words and maybe you finally learn what they are. But you can avoid a lot of that pain if it is possible to anticipate the answer somewhat. And it often is. It just takes a little bit of, little bit of time, a little bit of thought, and uh, it can save you a lot of you know, embarrassment in, in your broken Chinese conversations. So I think what we're talking about there is something that's a little bit more transactional. I asked this question, I want to get an answer, and I think it might be these answers. But actually, you can prepare a lot better questions and conversations in general for stuff like just chatting with friends. Like I remember quite a few times when I knew I was going to be hanging out with a Chinese friend, and I knew my Chinese wasn't very good or it wasn't where I wanted it to be. And so I would actually do homework and prepare for those conversations by thinking of multiple questions that I thought would be interesting, and then also kind of anticipating some answers, thinking of some things I wanted to add. And so I would just kind of imagine the conversation and script it a little bit. And of course, it doesn't go exactly how you think, but um, you'd be surprised at how useful like some of this conversation prep really is. I had this neighbor back in Shanghai who was always interested in talking about the United States military. And it was because of that I learned how to say like aircraft carrier in Chinese and fighter pilots and, you know, some of these military words because I knew he was always asking about it, always talking about it. So, yeah, it was, it was fun to kind of prep a little bit and be ready to approach a conversation that someone wanted to engage in. So, yeah, the military thing is kind of a, a very specific topic. Um but if you just think of all kinds of things that you'd like to think about and you write them out in questions, you might do what I have done before, which is like try to have a conversation cheat sheet. And like you don't want the other person to see that you like have this paper, this cheat sheet for your conversation <laughs> because I don't know, it feels silly or embarrassing. But if you do a lot of prep, you're not going to be able to hide it because it's going to be a lot of text. And then if they can see it, they'll, they'll just be like, oh, you know, and they'll, and they'll be all interested in what you wrote. And then they'll probably want to talk about every question that you wrote down. And it, it can actually be really good, you know, even when you don't hide the prep that you did. I mean, really, this is a fantastic idea because, you know, as far as like educational theory, you know, the best thing you can do is, is use what you just learned. And in this case, you're studying, you're prepping, and then you're going to the conversation with the intention to use what you just learned. I mean, that's a great way to help things really stick in your mind and make it relevant. I mean, that, that's, that's uh, how much more uh, relevant can you make your learning, you know, than doing something like that. Yeah, so just make sure that you're not sabotaging yourself with that whole learning effect by writing down stupid questions that you don't really care the answers to, right? Just make sure it's things that you want to talk about, things that you're interested in, because combined with the actual conversation, it's going to work great. Well, John, I think this is all great, but maybe not everybody has, you know, a opportunity to go out and speak with Chinese natives all the time and, and prep or friends or be in social situations like that. What about uh, people who might just be in the classroom or have a, a teacher and that's their interaction that they have available right now? Okay, so some teachers might be somewhat traditional in that they kind of stick to the textbook-type questions 
and they don't ask too many unexpected questions or whatever. But um, there are a lot of teachers which will ask more open-ended questions, especially when you're at the intermediate level or above and they know you can handle it. They'll ask you open-ended questions, you know, how do you feel about or why do you think or how would you go about doing this? So they, you have to say more. You can't just give one or two word answers. And having a teacher that does that really helps you stretch your abilities. And if you do manage to give a one or two word answer and your teacher is like, uh-uh, you need to say more, then that, that's really good too because uh, once you get to that level, you probably are used to giving one or two word answers, but you can do better than that. A real quick tip to teachers who might be listening about this exact uh, issue. If you're asking that question, wait. If they're struggling, don't reach out to rescue them. Let us struggle. You know, let them work through and figure out how they're going to try to say it. And for us learners, I mean, that's really important. Also, don't just be like, uh, or I don't know how to say it. Struggle. Say it wrong. Uh, because there's there's progress in that struggle of learning and figuring out how to say it. Usually you have the idea of really what you want to say in your mind. You're just not sure how to put it out there. And that happens. That happens. I have that happen. You know, sometimes it's just like, uh, I know the words. I know what I want to say, but I'm not sure how to say it. So struggle through it. And then if you need correction, that teacher can help correct you afterwards. Yeah, that's really a good point to bring up, Jared. And some those two pieces of feedback that I often get um, from clients when they really like a teacher is one, that they ask good questions. They're not just the same boring yes, no questions or whatever that they've heard a million times. And then two, yeah, the teacher that is patient and lets them struggle. And maybe it takes them two or three attempts to to formulate their answer in a way that that they're satisfied with that can really continue the conversation. But just that that patience right there can make such a difference in the conversation. And then over time, that really adds up to greater confidence and greater ability to express yourself. Now, that's teachers. That's in classroom and, and working with teachers. But I think that the, the next stage on this is as a Chinese speaker, as a Chinese learner, learning to ask open-ended questions yourself. Now, those closed-ended questions, they're safe, right? Because you can accept, you know, a yes or no or, you know, yao bu yao, something like that. But now having, you know, opening up the playing field, having some sort of question and having that risk that maybe you don't understand what's being said. But this is really where you want to get. Yeah, and just as asking questions, you know, about certain things helps you take control of the conversation and lead or steer the conversation in more interesting directions, asking open-ended questions gives the other person a chance to take the conversation in new and interesting directions that you weren't expecting. And so this is something that once you have the ability, you know, the level to do it, like maybe intermediate or above, then you absolutely should do it because it is going to make the conversations a little more difficult for you but it is going to be very rewarding in that you're going to have new conversations that you could not have expected or predicted. And there's some real easy ways to approach this. I mean, it's like, hey, what did you do this weekend? Uh, tell me about your job. Uh, how did you spend the, the holiday? You know, these are, you know, really easy stuff. But I mean, as you can see, there's, there's going to be a whole lot of things that could have happened. But also, I mean, getting back to, you know, where we're talking about even earlier, John, is like about preparing for conversations. You know, if you know that teacher or that person a little bit, their age, their family situation, and you say, what did you do this weekend? You may have an idea. Oh, well, 
you know they there's there's a, a range of po- most likely things that they may have done and you can prep for some of these things but actually getting to that point of asking these open-ended questions, it, that's really, I mean, this this is real communication and connection. Yeah, and obviously the more uh, open-ended or maybe random the questions are, the harder it is to anticipate or plan for different types of answers. And so that just kind of scales with your level. You know, the higher level, the more confidence you have, the more risk you're willing to take in your conversations, and the more open-ended they could be or the more slightly random the, the topic can be. And I think one of the things that's, that's uh, most, uh, I don't know, rewarding is just asking people, what do you think about X, right? And that X could be something really simple, but it could be some kind of new buzzword that you heard about in the news or, you know, on the Seneca podcast or whatever. And that kind of question can really help you a lot. Definitely. And you know, something I, I think is really helpful in, in this area when you ask an open-ended question, because you're, you're going to come across and be, encounter these things that maybe you don't understand. But that's the next opportunity to ask those follow-up questions. So, you know, ask about something that was broad. You didn't quite understand what was going on. And then you might say, oh, you said this. What, what is the meaning of this word? Or you're talking about this. I, I don't quite understand. Maybe you can help me understand a little better. And so, you know, drilling down uh, it, and that that can really open up some educational opportunities for you, but also some opportunities to explore a topic in a little bit more depth in Chinese that you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, and it's also a signal to the other person that you're getting most of what they're saying, but there's just a little bit that you didn't quite get. And um, that can also really help them to help you. And, you know, maybe maybe they'll change their language just a little bit to help you follow. But if you're always pretending like you understand everything, or as soon as you don't understand one word, you're just like, ting bu dong, then um, you know, either of those approaches is, you know, it's going to make it hard for them to actually help you. So getting back to what I had said earlier, even about that concept of struggling, right, to, to understand, like there is growth in that struggle. So if you're getting to this point and you're asking these open-ended questions and it is a struggle, that's okay. But you can involve that person you're speaking with in that struggle. You can say, you know, can you help me with this? I don't quite get this. And honestly, I really, I think about this, John. This I do this with my tutor uh, quite frequently. I'm like, I didn't quite understand what I was reading here. Maybe you can explain it to me. It's a great feeling when you can ask a question of like a, a word you don't understand in Chinese and they can explain it to you in Chinese and you understand it. And you didn't have to actually use English to you know, leverage your English understanding to understand Chinese. It's great when you get to that point. Now, you know, that's not for like beginners per se, but uh, you you can definitely get there and there, there's that growth in the struggle. Totally. But no matter what level you're at, then for sure, paying a little extra attention to questions is going to help you learn better, learn faster, and learn in a more interesting way that is more tailored to your interests. So if you're not doing it already, be sure to find a way to work more questions and the right kinds of questions into your Chinese studies. Ah, so inquisitive, are you, John? Yeah, man, it's the way to be. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion Merch. That's right. We have a web store on our website that we offer people uh, T-shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, things like that with uh, funny Chinese things on it. Yeah, so this is a great way to let the Chinese speakers around you know that you know the secret code, you speak their language, and uh, you might make a friend that you totally were not expecting to just by wearing a t-shirt. 
That's right, and I think our best seller on there is the Gemwo Shuo Zhongwen T-shirts and sweatshirts. It says "Speak Chinese with me." But there's lots of other ones. Like there's cuter ones or、uh, more clever ones.、Uh, you should totally check them out. So you can go to mannercompanion.com/slash/merch. You can find the link on the website. And I will say that we are running a special promotion for this Thanksgiving holiday. By the time this podcast airs, it'll be Cyber Monday. It'll be the last day of the promotion. But with the promo code Hey Friday H E I like Black Black Friday Hey Friday twenty two, you can get twenty five percent off of your entire purchase. So if you give these shirts for Christmas, then that's going to give people enough time to wear it and be ready to. Spend Chinese New Year speaking better Chinese with their new Manner Companion merch, and we offer free shipping on orders over fifty dollars in the United States, and free shipping for worldwide orders over a hundred dollars. So you can go check it out today. Just go to mannercompanion.com, and remember the promo code is Hey Friday H E I Friday twenty two. Right now, it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? It's kind of a holiday thing, and I guess you could say it's a rave. <laughs> But、um, you know, I'm in Shanghai, a very international city. Even though COVID is keeping us a bit cooped up here in Shanghai, it's still pretty international. Thanksgiving is the one time of the year when I can have you know proper Thanksgiving food. I usually can't get roast turkey or stuffing or Cranberry sauce, but thanks to Shanghai's、uh, you know food logistics system, I can get all this great Thanksgiving food sent to my home. Or if I want to, if I want to be lazier, there are like lots of restaurants around town that do these、uh, Thanksgiving buffets or Thanksgiving meals, and they do them on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, like the whole Thanksgiving weekend,、mm. which uh, helps us uh, busy. Expats here in Shanghai find time to celebrate Thanksgiving. That's exciting. So you are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving in Shanghai? Yeah, you know, I, I want to do it on Thursday, the actual Thanksgiving, but I think we're going to have to do it on Sunday this year because you know schedules, reasons.、Yeah. I can relate, my friend. We we always did that as well, and sometimes we、uh, had duck instead of turkey. No, I don't do that. It's got to be turkey. But anyway, that's enough about me and Thanksgiving. Jared, how about you? Rant or rave? John, I've got a rave, and it's actually a story, a personal experience that happened to me just over a week ago. Our guest on the last podcast is Dan Stevenson. Well, he gave me a call, and he said, "Hey, Jared,、uh, we have a delegation from D.C.、Uh, in town here in Utah, of all places. He wanted to know if I wanted to come play pickleball with the." Chinese ambassador to the United States, Jared. What the heck is pickleball? <laughs> yes, pickleball. Well, it's growing in popularity. It, it first started in Bainbridge Island there in Seattle, and pickleball. It's like a mix between ping pong and tennis. I know paddleball. Is it kind of like that? I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not familiar with paddleball, but、uh, pickleball. It, it's like a, a ping pong paddle, but it's a little bigger, and the ball's a, almost like a wiffle ball, but. Not a big wiffle ball, and you play on a court like a tennis court, but it's not as big as a tennis court. It's a little smaller.、Uh, anyway, it was, it was a lot of fun. 
But yeah, it was a really neat experience. Um, I actually wore my uh, uh, sweatshirt there. So I, as the delegation came in, they saw I was wearing that. And they're like, oh, you speak Chinese. And it was just a really neat experience. I, I got to play with him and his wife. And I, I'm a pretty fun guy. We were all laughing and having a good time. But a lot of people wanted to play with him. I wasn't the only person invited. And it was funny, after he was playing about a half an hour, someone wanted to sub in. And he's like, you can take my spot. I'm like, no, 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 you can't. You have to keep playing. You're the ambassador. All the Chinese people with him were laughing and stuff. Anyway, it was an opportunity. And this is really, I think, the core of it. When he came in, I got to share with him in Chinese about my time in China, uh, about living there. My wife gave birth to two kids there, starting a business there, and speak that to him in Chinese. And there were a couple other people there who also had spent time in China and spoke good Chinese, and they got to share a little bit of their experience with him when they came in, and also talking to some of the other people there with the delegation. They're all stationed at the embassy in Washington, D.C. The point behind that is it's right now it's a very difficult time between the United States and China as far as political relations. It was a real opportunity, I felt, to just kind of build some of those bridges. And I got to talk to some of the guys in the Chinese embassy that were, were accompanying him and help dispel some misunderstandings, things like of that nature. And it just made me realize that, hey, you know, there's a lot of reasons that we're learning Chinese, but at the end of the day, it's about that making connections with people. It's not like a, I think my experience is going to drastically change any geopolitical relations between the two countries, but these types of experiences, in my opinion, kind of, they build and they help. And it helps promote and create that mutual understanding that's really important, you know, on a global scale. Well, nice. It sounds like uh, pickleball diplomacy is better than ping pong diplomacy because it's in Chinese. And so uh, good job, Jared, for taking the opportunity to practice Chinese and do something meaningful with it. Well, thanks, man. And pickleball diplomacy, it's all the rage now. My name is Jonathan Reckman. I'm a Chinese-English simultaneous interpreter. Jonathan joined me virtually from Sydney, Australia. After almost a year, we were finally able to make this interview happen. And so I spent about a decade practicing conference interpreting at conferences, business meetings, financial summits, and bilateral talks and multilateral conferences all around the world. Jonathan's career has opened up doors to a wide array of unique experiences that he channels into trying to stay ahead of the curve. His story provides insights into what it took for him to get to the highest levels of Chinese. Stay with us. Jonathan, why did you start learning Chinese? I started learning Chinese because I, from a very, very young age, developed a deep, deep, deep affection for Chinese food. And Hmm. I had this belief, which turned out to be substantiated, that if I could learn Chinese, I could get access to different kinds of Chinese food that weren't on the menu in English. And specifically, that I could access forms of dumplings that I couldn't get on English menus (laughs) at Chinese restaurants in America. I have to pause you here, though. You fell in love with Chinese food, but was this Chinese-American food? I'm assuming it probably was. It would have had to been. It must have been, you know, pork lo mein and stuff. And I just, I loved the stuff. And so I remember when I I began learning Chinese in college and a friend of mine asked kind of like, what's your goal here? What's your end game look like? 
And I remember very clearly, I just thought like if I could learn Chinese well enough to order off a menu in Chinese in a Chinese restaurant, that would just be, I've made it. Uh, I had no idea, of course, <laughs> that this would go on, this learning of this language, and then the love would expand from the food to the language, to the culture, to the landscape of China, to the nation, the people, and the economy of China. Even at these early stages, you're learning Chinese, you had that fascination with the Chinese food. Did it like unlock secret menu items for you? <laughs> 100%. Me and my brother would have this tradition of going on walking trips across small countries. And so we, we walked across Ireland. And the tradition was that at the the very last day of the trip, we'd always go to the local Chinatown and have a lunch. And in a restaurant in Dublin, we were scanning the menu for dumplings. And all we could see was uninspiring dumpling offerings, pork dumpling, fried dumpling, steamed dumpling. And I remember whipping out early in my Chinese-speaking career, speaking to the waitress and asking if they had this special dumpling or that special dumpling off the menu and being delighted and intensely impressing my brother when, in fact, there was this whole other off-menu you know, dumpling offering that we were able to access. And it feels very much like finding cheat codes or finding some Easter egg that if you have this magical word, all of a sudden it, it manifests in reality. And so that's pretty cool. That sounds like a, your early superpower, right? Unlocking the secret menu. I think so. I mean, language is a superpower, right? From a human species development standpoint, it's 100% our superpower. And then if you are coming from a monoculture and trying to branch out into the world and explore, to put it in metaphysical terms, like the human experience or in more practical terms, you're just trying to travel and have cool adventures. Well, Jonathan, what was it, though, about the Chinese language or even the food? Because, I mean, I know people that might say, all right, you know, I want to eat all these special ramen dishes, you know, from Japan, and they might just learn some special names of the dishes. Maybe even they go there, but not necessarily learn the language. Why do you think that you went like that fuller step in saying, okay, I'm not just going to learn about some of these foods and even maybe learn to cook them. I mean, you went quite a few steps further to say, hey, I want to learn this whole language. I came to China as a backpacker and immediately just fell deeply in love with the richness. I remember one of the first kind of solo adventures I took was climbing to Taishan, which mm. is kind of one of the five you know sacred mountains in China and watching the sunrise there. And this is in the early 2000s, and I was, you know, as a poor college student, so I was staying in a freezing cold guest house on top of a mountain in early March. And I just remember, I don't think I'd ever been so cold as the, the night that I spent in that drafty room. And then getting up to watch the sunrise from the mountain peak. And as the sun rose, something not only warmed, but awakened inside me, which is this realization that, that this place... And I really mean the place, the geography. I was at a phase in life where hiking and camping and kind of nature and outdoor exploration was really important to me. And feeling in my bones that there was a magic here. There was a magic that extended from thousands and thousands and thousands of years of civilization, that for thousands of years, people had been climbing this mountain and finding something powerful about it. And that was a transcendental moment and one that inspired me to want to be there and to want to connect to that power and connect to that magic. And language was not the only way that I wound up connecting to it. I became very interested in, for example, Weichi and Go. So there's other mm -hmm. aspects of the culture that I found useful as conduits to touch that and to experience it and to learn from it. 
but language was by far, it's like the greatest bandwidth that you can use to mainline culture into you. Language has always played a, a really big part of my human experience, right? From a very young mm -hmm. age, doing a lot of writing. In college, I was a spoken word slam poet, pretty competitive. Mm, cool. And Scrabble and crossword puzzles and, and treating language as both a game and an art. It's so intellectually challenging, so interesting. It's like any good game, there's always a next level. There's always a challenge. There's always a new threshold to aim at. The way that I approached a lot of language learning was through conversation with people of all sorts. And the cool thing about learning through conversation is you get this dopamine hit every time a connection is achieved. Mm -hmm. So every time you say something and they clearly understand it and they respond in kind and you understand it, you're getting like a reward for your performance. And so those moments of connection, even with just random folks on the street, every interaction I'd have using this new language, using this tool, which created this sort of self-reinforcing motivation, a mm. feedback loop. That sounds great. So you went on this backpacking trip. You came back for a study abroad. But at what point do you feel like your Chinese really started taking off, like we're getting real traction with the language? You know, I started with very pure intentions of, of wanting to order dumplings off Chinese menus from early days, fell in love with it and developed a voracious appetite, not just for the dumplings, but for the language. <laughs> I took a couple of college courses, you know, a semester in Washington, D.C., and then a, a semester study abroad at Beida at Peking University. And that early university learning was not the ideal learning environment for me. It's very challenging to learn the language as a part-time out-of-country learner. Even my semester at PKU, I think, was not ideal and, and not as productive from a language learning perspective because it was a study abroad program and I'm surrounded by other American students and I'm mm. at you know, a, a, an elite university where a lot of the Chinese folks around me were also pretty strong English speakers and were motivated and speaking English with me. You know, my breakthroughs came from leaving those environments and going out into the West Chinese countryside and doing a lot of kind of traveling and backpacking. I mean, I think the upside there is that you need to speak the language and you need to immerse yourself in order to survive. If you can't say it, you can't eat it. Uh, and so it, it really forces you to communicate in a way that, you know, having the, the luxury to fall back on English doesn't give you that motivation. The downside, of course, is that Mandarin isn't spoken at the same standard across the country. And so mm -hmm. I probably picked up some bad habits along the way. And then I did a, a semester or so study in Xi'an Jiao Tong Dashia. And that was actually very effective because there were not a lot of native English speakers in that program. So most of my classmates were Koreans or Japanese. And I really, again, had to speak Chinese all day, every day. I also had a roommate during that time who was about the same level of Chinese and who was as or more motivated to learn the language as I was. And mm. it became a sort of competitive dynamic where we were both pushing each other to learn more and study more and develop our vocabulary more. Did you speak English or Chinese with your roommate? We insisted on speaking Chinese with one another, which is probably one of the cringiest experiences <laughs> in the world, is two white guys speaking an Asian language together. I still gawk when I see others do it, and I'm sure that I was no exception from the cringe. But it was a pretty intense kind of couple months of side-by-side -side learning and speaking and practicing every day. And so I think that was sort of the transformation from beginner to intermediate. I came back, finished my degree in the States, and immediately after graduating, you know, I had a 
philosophy degree in the middle of a financial crisis. So Mm -hmm. a lot of philosophy jobs waiting for me. You know, after college, I, I moved to Dalian without a plan. You know, I, I wanted to, to kind of go and find my fortune. I spent about six months in Dalian trying to further solidify my Chinese. And the way that I did it was, again, immersion first and building a social network around me. I knew nobody in the city. And so mm-hmm. I would just go into a local coffee shop and put a chessboard on the table with a little handwritten sign that said something to the effect of, like any laowai <laughs> shachi, come play chess with a foreigner. I don't, I don't even remember what I wrote. But sure enough, I'd get random folks from the coffee shop to come in and play chess with me, and we'd strike up conversations, and, and from that I'd build friendships. And those friendships wow. wound up becoming um, quite broad. After about six months in Dalian, I, I had a VJ hosting gig on a local closed circuit TV station. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> was kind of plugged into the local Dalian power structure. By 2008, I was getting pretty proficient and wound up being recruited by the European Union to study and train as a Chinese English simultaneous interpreter through a program that the EU Commission runs in collaboration with hmm. the Chinese Ministry of Commerce. In 2008, I moved to Beijing and began a two-year graduate program in conference interpreting. And it was, without a doubt, the most intense and productive academic experience of my life. The EU, I think, recruited 10 scholars over the course of two years to participate in this fellowship. We were combined with Chinese nationals who were kind of recruited on the Chinese side. And after the first year, they did a kind of qualifications test, basically to, you know, pass fail to see Mm -hmm. whether you continue. Our class of 10 was cut to six after the first year. Wow! In the very end, only four people graduated in our year. Pretty serious. It was a serious program. I wound up being the only European student to complete the program. Must have felt like a big accomplishment. At that point in your life, though, is that what you wanted to achieve? Is, was that kind of your one of your goals? Yeah, I think for a long time, I was working really hard to get my Chinese to the next level, but it wasn't clear to me what I was going to do with it. What's the bigger picture here? And how do these skills translate into a career? And I'd thought about being a translator. Some people had told me that it can be a tough gig, and it can also be a very lonely gig. But I like to meet people, I like to talk, and I like a really broad diversity of ideas and topics. And when I first heard like what interpreters are and what they do and where they work and how they work, it instantly became the dream, which mm. is to travel around China and around the world and be in the meetings where stakeholders from different sides of the table, different industries with different incentives and different perspectives, different cultural backgrounds, different linguistic backgrounds, where everybody is coming to try and sort things out, to try and make the global economy move forward. And the interpreters play this fascinating, critical role in not just sorting out the language problem, but from the interpreter's perspective, it's sort of like transcending the perspectives. In a more abstract sense, like giving voice to different perspectives, taking one perspective and then representing them in a way, in a language, but in a voice that others from a completely different set of backgrounds and culture and assumptions and beliefs and perspectives and interests can work with. Can you think of any memorable experience where you were able to do that? 
I graduated from the program and, and went to work as a conference interpreter, and my earliest clients were all diplomatic. I was doing a lot of bilateral meetings and both working level and then eventually kind of high-level leader meetings. One of the memories that sticks out from my early days interpreting was for a EU-China dialogue on intellectual property rights. Oh, One of the issues on the table was the Europeans were frustrated and were raising the concern that Chinese manufacturers of cheese were selling cheese with the name Parma Ham. And I think some Chinese winemakers using the word champagne, you know, geographical indicators that represent that they're made from a certain place, in this case from Europe. The European side wanted to make sure that these geographical indicator rights weren't being infringed upon. And I remember... As the European side was presenting their case, I was interpreting along and I was, the more passionate they would get, the more passionate I would get. And I was feeling like, you know, <laughs> really invested. And I think to be an effective interpreter, you sort of have to get really invested in your speakers, not just their language, not just their words, but in their perspective mm. and really become them and embody them in the target language. And so I found myself getting really, this was a matter of principle and of law and of I found myself get the fire in me, was getting worked up about this. And the Chinese side, you know, nods and consults, and then they respond. And the, the Chinese response was, that's fine. But we've also heard lots of reports of restaurants selling Peking duck in Europe, and Chinese <laughs> restaurants in Europe selling Peking duck. And surely those ducks are not from Peking. And in interpreting it, I found myself becoming equally convinced. Like, why are your geographical indicators so precious? But, you know, nobody seems to think that that's an issue for Chinese place names being used overseas in marketing your local products. I think what interpreting and, and honestly, mm -hmm. the entire like language learning process, but, but interpreting especially, teaches you an empathy for perspectives that are not your own that are not your native perspective. And, you know, it's well documented that learning a foreign language and travel broadens your perspective and allows you to, you know, see the world through someone else's eyes. But I think interpreting, especially because you're not just seeing it through their eyes, you're actually becoming their voice. You mm -hmm. are them in those moments. If you really dedicate yourself to it and you really embody your speaker, in order to do it well, you have to become them. It's a little bit like acting, you are infusing yourself, not just with their words, but with their spirit, and then delivering them to an audience in a language that they understand. And in order to do that well, you have to become them and not just speak on their behalf, but mm. think and see from their perspective. Well, that sounds really neat. So I understand, you know, you've gone on and you've done a whole lot of simultaneous interpretation. I've even seen like a picture of you uh, translating for like Matt Damon somewhere there in China. <laughs> yeah. I was really lucky. There were a couple of decades, probably from the 90s, where interpreters, especially in Chinese-English interpreters, were in hot demand. The Chinese economy was increasingly integrated, especially after joining the WTO. And anybody that wanted to do anything interesting in the world inevitably sort of had to have a China angle. And that increasing integration meant uh, increasing need for communication and increasing demand for interpreters. And meanwhile, supply was still very limited. And so interpreters had a lot of bargaining power in the market. It was pretty lucrative. And we were pretty pampered. I was lucky to catch, I think, the tail end of that. I graduated in 2010 and had a very 
fun and, and successful career as an interpreter for a number of years and got to you know be at big international conferences like the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and APEC and worked with a lot of you know world leaders from Hillary Clinton and Angela Merkel to interpreting once through Relay for Putin for half dozen British and Australian kind of heads of government. As the Chinese economy evolved, the market would bring you into different hot sectors. So for a mm. while, the China Hollywood co-production was really hot. And so they were bringing in a lot of Hollywood celebrities to do PR in China as the movie industry boomed. And so I would do kind of red carpet walks with Matt Damon or with Colin Firth or with, you know, Blake Lively and, and Jessica Alba. And these were really kind of fun, flashy press events. Some of them were more substantive than others. But it was less about me. It was more about where China was vis-a-vis -vis the world, where again, everyone was coming through Beijing. Mm. And if you were coming through Beijing, there was at least a reasonably decent chance that needed an interpreter and I'd wind up working on those cases. And then kind of further as the economy developed into, you know, finance and tech investment. And so these kind of became new areas of expertise. And as interpreters, you roll with what the market needs. So you develop expertise in those fields. One of my favorite gigs was the Department of Agriculture funded a trade promotion mission to promote Californian fine wines in China. And so they put together this really tremendous roadshow where they brought some of the finest wines that are made in America and mm -hmm. California, famous Californian vineyards, they'd bring them by the crate. And then they invited a master mm -hmm. sommelier named Tim Geyser, who's really a force and an influence in the industry, has a new book out. Definitely check it out. The message in the bottle. And we embarked on this kind of wild roadshow across, you know, four or five cities in China, introducing mm. California wines to local Chinese sommeliers and helping them understand how a California Zinfandel pairs with Sichuan food, for example. Wow. And we convinced the organizers that in order to effectively interpret for the wine tastings, we had to be able to drink the wine as we interpreted so that we could get a, <laughs> a direct tactile and an empirical sense of the subject matter. <laughs> and so increasingly, we you know had some good tipsy interpreting going on. You got um, a little looser as it went on, right? <laughs> but as everyone knows, your language skills get better. Of course. Alcohol. So <laughs> all the inhibitions evaporate and you really find your flow. Simultaneous interpreting lends itself very much to a flow state. You feel like you're hitting the stride. You're getting this tight feedback loop from your audience or from your conversation partner that, mm -hmm. you know, encourages you and emboldens you. And then also creates harder and harder challenges to tackle. You know, you get more ambitious. You want to say more complicated things. You want to add flourishes. You want to add flair. And that increases the difficulty, but also increases the satisfaction that you get when it lands. Wow. Well, Jonathan, I know that you've done simultaneous interpretation for a long time, but you've also kind of moved on, if you will, right, into kind of a new venture. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and why did you maybe move beyond, if you will, on that and what you're doing now? Somewhere in the mid-2010s, AI started to develop in ways that people weren't expecting. And in our industry, of course, the question has always been, will AI replace translators? Will AI replace interpreters? And we always believed very, very, very firmly that no, that there was something fundamentally human about interpretation, about human conversation and human dialogue that 
AI would either never be able to reproduce or would not be able to for a very, 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 very long time. And most often cited in that defense was the elements like humor, elements like cultural references, nuance, as well as the impact of nonverbal communication, which, you know, if there's research that cited that over 90% of, of communication is nonverbal, there's a lot of non-semantic information. And so there was always a lot of doubt that AI could really ever match, could ever do what the human can do in this field. And so for a long time, interpreters told ourselves that our profession was technology-proof. My own sense of professional security about that was shaken, if not shattered, in 2016 when AlphaGo beat Lisa Dole, the, the world mm-hmm. champion of Go. What was a huge upset for everyone in every community. Certainly mm-hmm. in the Go community, which I've also spent a lot of time with, nobody believed that an AI could beat the world champion. It was, again, meant to be too nuanced a game for a computer to get. It was more about intuition than about brute force computation. And so no one thought it was possible. And in fact, nobody in the AI community really thought it was possible before it happened. And when it did happen, I can't say that I saw writing on the wall, but I was like, man, if the impossible happened here, why won't it happen over there? It quickly kind of rose in my mind that, look, Maybe AI won't replace human interpreters in five years or in 10 years. But in 20 years, is this still going to be a profession? You can do your entire career and not be you know, automated away or even partially automated away. I think it still hasn't happened where you still don't have AI simultaneous interpreters that have completely replaced human. But I think much more likely is you wind up with AIs that are capturing 80 to 90% of the meaning and then, you know, human effectively simultaneous post editors filling in the gaps or making sure that, you know, the jokes come across. Mm. Maybe that's a good outcome for a good application of technology to to solve a problem and allows it to scale. But it definitely represents a diminishing proportion of value that comes from the human in real market terms becomes less, I hate to say less valuable, right? You think you have like a nice high demand, low supply business, but the market hates a vacuum. So when there is a high demand and and low supply and high prices and, and the suppliers, in this case, freelance interpreters of a certain breed got to kind of fly around the world in business class and charge pretty cushy fees to negotiate, you know, light workloads. It was not clear that that could be sustainable. Mm. And in fact, Mm -hmm. at least in the China market, China launched a whole, you know, generation of, uh, they called it MTI programs, masters in translation and interpreting all across the country, you know, I think hundreds of programs and and started cranking out thousands and thousands of trained interpreters, which definitely like flood the market and bring down, you know, some of that gap disparity. And I think what then happens when you have high demand and high supply is the natural economics are it, it becomes valuable enough to match that supply and demand that you you build a platform, right? And so when I was approached by two young entrepreneurs, Matt Conger and Phil Cohen, who were starting a platform for interpreters to kind of help platformize this industry, I first felt threatened by it as, you know, what are you fellas doing? You're going to eat my cake here. This vision of technology is encroaching on the human's proportional value in the value chain. 
I kind of said, I think I want to be on the business side of this. You mm. know, if, if there's going to be platforms and tech powering this industry, I'd rather be on that side than on the one-man solo practitioner side. And you just want to be on the right side of history. So I invested in and joined later as a co-founder what's now called Cadence Translate and is a market-leading provider of language solutions, interpreting, translation, transcription. That kind of represented my shift to entrepreneurship. More recently, I've started a new venture, also focused on the kind of communication and finance, back to that early realization that everything's connected. The, the global economy is, is, is really a web, and how we communicate determines how value and how capital flows across the global economy. The new venture is called Next Level Communication, and it's focused on helping organizations and leaders communicate their story across all sorts of different borders and boundaries. So across cultural boundaries, across mm -hmm. linguistic boundaries, and across industry boundaries. And so we work with venture capital funds and private equity funds to help their fund managers raise money from international investors. We work with Chinese and Asia-Pacific multinational executives, help them tell their story overseas to overseas investors, overseas corporate boards of directors, and to international partners. Wow, that's, that's really neat. Well, you know, Jonathan, you've been involved in Chinese language interpretation, highlighting some of these things, these developing technologies of AI, machine translation. Where do you really see that this is going? And in the future, how important do you think it is for people to continue to learn languages, or do you think it's going to be less important and they can rely on technology? You can give your honest, real opinion here. Uh, my honest, real opinion is learning languages is one of the greatest joys of being a human. When you learn Chinese, you unlock a billion potential friendships that you could not otherwise have. More than a billion, right? Probably closer, mm, you know, yeah. a, a billion and a half. That being said, it's incredibly hard and time-consuming. And I don't think there's any shortcuts. That's probably not true. There's probably been huge advances in language learning. I've never used Duolingo. Like I learned Chinese before. Man, we saw mm -hmm. paper dictionaries. You remember paper <laughs> yeah. dictionaries? Oh, yeah. That yep. sucked. Oh my yep. God. It was so hard. <laughs> so like there's definitely been productivity improvements, technology improvements that will make it easier to learn. Maybe maybe we'll go all matrixy and you can just, you know, upload knowledge of a language through Neuralink in the future and, and that'll be awesome. And I'm not against that. I don't think that there's like a nobility to the struggle itself. But it still does require a tremendous amount of perseverance mm -hmm. and dedication. And my experience is really only possible to do as a full-time pursuit. The idea of like putting aside an hour a week to learn a language to me is not feasible unless you just enjoy that, unless it's pure entertainment and diversion for you. I don't think it's an effective, productive way to learn a language. I, I think you kind of have to go all in. I think you think immersion is a really big part of it. And I think that's a great thing to do. So if you know a young person is considering what they want to do, taking a gap year or, or what they want to do during a year abroad, 100% recommend finding a place that captures you. You have to love it because if mm -hmm. you don't love it, you won't be motivated. It's like, I don't, I don't remember where I read somewhere about farming. It's like, you know, if you're going to be a farmer, you better love farming because otherwise it will <laughs> kick your ass all morning and all, all day, every day. And I feel like that that's about learning a foreign language as well. And choosing which language you want to learn. Like the idea of learning something that I'm not passionate about would just be excruciating to me. Like I think you mm. have to be intrinsically motivated. You have to be self-directed and then find a good tutor or a good teacher and just put in the hours. It is, in my experience, like it's a 10,000 hours game. Like, you know, the, mm -hmm. the road to mastery is just a lot of 
intentional practice with good feedback loops. And I think it's definitely worth doing. Let's hypothetically say artificial intelligence advances to the point, all right, well, it can pretty much act as a simultaneous interpreter. And so someone says, why should I even learn Chinese? You know, I can just use my app. You know, it's going to translate for me and I have no problem communicating. Yeah, look, I, I think we could get to the point where you could navigate through a foreign society and form basic level friendships and do basic business, you know, conduct your affairs using machine translation or even machine interpreting. That might not be all so far off, but I think it's also a matter of what kind of depth of relationship you want to have, how close those partnerships will be, and how much trust is ultimately engendered. But that being said, look, it's cost-benefit, right? So if you were trying to make the call, does it still make sense to spend three to four years of your life going all in learning a language that you could probably get 80% of the way with machine interpreting? I can't answer that for you. Maybe the economics don't work out from like a career perspective. I think the people that I know who have learned Chinese as a second language, I don't know anyone who regrets it, mm -hmm. who wishes that they'd done something else with the time. It would be easy to say, oh man, you know, I, I spent 10,000 hours learning Chinese. I wish I'd spent 10,000 hours learning Python. Like, I don't know yeah. what my life would have been like, but I really cherish all of the hours that I spent with Chinese friends over coffees and over dinner tables. And I wouldn't trade those for, you know, thousands of hours debugging code at all. Well, I know a counterbalance to maybe what your perspective you're sharing is I did recently see a study that showed that of people who had learned a language but kind of didn't keep it up and let it slip, 70% of the people regretted not keeping their language skills up. They regretted not keeping the language skills up, but they didn't regret learning the language in the first place. Absolutely not, no. Yeah. And in fact, they regretted actually letting it slip. So it was more of like they wish they would have kept it up. Learning a language is also... With each language, it has its own personality, right? Like each language is a psychological operating system. And when you enter that language state of mind, it's an out-of-body experience in some sense. It's an out-of-self experience. Like I'm a different person when I speak Chinese than I am in English. So the ability to parallel process and to have that kind of like alternate identity and experiment with different kind of social dynamics is pretty irreplaceable. It shows you that the boundaries around your own psyche are more permeable than maybe you realize. I recall a quote that I think maybe sums this up. It's, to learn another language is to possess another soul. I can relate to those parallels that you're talking about there. Well, Jonathan, if people want to find out a little bit more about you or about what you do, where can they find you? Add me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Rechtman, and you can also follow my companies, Cadence Translate and Next Level Communication on LinkedIn. And I'm always an eager writer, reader, corresponder, podcast guest, aspiring podcast host, and would love to connect. Oh, great. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. It's been wonderful hearing your story. Thanks so much. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, activists, puppeteer, donor, trucker, director, intern, and that one gal named Lucy. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com or tag us on social media. Hashtag Mandarin Companion. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. 
The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Kuo, and interview editor is Dominic Edgley. And I'd like to thank our special guest, Jonathan Reckman. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pass. See you next time.